Watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Yes, it's me! I did it! We did it! We did it! Keep clapping! We did it! Clap! If you believe that I could get the nomination even before I did, how would we know that you believed that we could get the nomination? even before we did, if you didn't keep clapping. Welcome to My Film Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you for taking the time out of your Wednesday, the, what is today? Wednesday the 3rd at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for taking this time to tune in to from your, taking a break from your social distancing and self-quarantining to join me here, far away from you, where neither of us will touch each other. We've got a great show for you tonight. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Anchor, Twitter, Periscope, iTunes, Google Play, Float, Twitch, everywhere. Check us out on muddywatersmedia.com. Check us out literally everywhere. If there is a social media venue or website, we are on it. A podcasting app, we are on it. Check us out. Like us, follow us, five star us. Hit the bell if applicable. Some of them have a bell they should be hitting. Hit that bell. Um, and be sure to share this right now. The last thing I want is for your closest friends and loved ones to be missing out on a roughly hour-long libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. That's the last thing I want, for, and I'm sure it's the last thing you want for them as well. Be sure to give the gift of Spike Cohen today, kids. 
Love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Dad Bod Calendar, which has raised thousands of dollars for Libertarian Party candidates candidates across the country, as well as state and local LP affiliates featuring some of the sexiest Libertarian men, including yours truly, as well as many, many others. Exactly 11 others, to be, uh, to be exact. Be sure to get one today. It's only $12 shipped, and uh, that uh, is a great way to social distance. Everyone will want to stay at least six feet away from you if you're carrying one of these things around. This episode is also brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, which is the fastest growing Waffle House related caucus in the Libertarian Party. And of course, this episode is brought to you by personal injury attorney Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If you are in the Tampa Bay area and find yourself personally injured, be sure to go to chrisreynolds.law or just look for this beautiful smiling face because he'll probably be there standing over you asking if you need help chrisreynoldslaw.com and thank you so much the intro and outro music to this and every episode of my fellow americans comes from the amazing and talented mr joe davi that's j-o-d-a-v-i check him out on facebook and on soundcloud go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com and be sure to buy his entire discography it's like 20 dollars 25 dollars by the entire thing. You will be so happy. Thank you to Mr. Joe Davi. I'd like to thank Kroger for this delicious purified drinking water that I drink on this and most episodes of My Fellow Americans, Bulabanaka. Oh, that is that is delicious Kroger water. Shout out to Tehran Turks and Momnum as always. So let's get to it, guys. As you probably know, or possibly, actually, I don't want to be presumptuous. As you possibly know, you are currently looking at, it says right here, you're currently looking at the vice presidential nominee of the Libertarian Party. This happened officially, as those of you who know, uh, I have been uh, running for this position since uh, mid-December, December 14th of last year, and I won it. Uh, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before, I uh, won the nomination in a uh, in a closely fought uh, match with um, John Mons, who is one of my absolute heroes in this party, and uh, I'm very honored to have run in the race with him and Larry Sharp and Ken Armstrong and um, who else was in it? Man, such a blur. John McAfee, uh, Craig Bowden. There's so many people. I, I'm, I'm honestly, it's a blur right now. And uh, just very, very honored to have run with so many amazing people uh, in a very respectful race. We never went dirty. We never, you know, went after each other personally or did mudslinging. We just, you know, contrasted and compared our, our styles and our uh, our strategies for the party, our vision for the party, and our policies. And the uh, the delegates uh, chose, and they chose me. And I am very honored. And uh, with that in mind. I am doing this episode as sort of a first uh, post-nomination episode of My Fellow Americans. And uh, as sort of, I guess it's going to be an AMA, uh, give you a chance to ask me any questions that you have. And also, I will be taking call-ins. We'll see how that goes. That's always, uh, that's always fun uh, to have people call in and not know who they are. Um, so we will be seeing uh, who that is. So if you have any questions, please feel free uh, to ask the questions. And I will answer them as best as I can. Uh, we did get one question uh, from the, uh, the, even before we went live, we got a question from a follower who asked, um, let's see here. 
so one question that I got is, uh, let's see, where was that question? Oh, can you win without negative campaigns and the ugliness that it brings out in people? Can you run and win on the issues at hand? That's an excellent question. That was from Al Swaridoski. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Well, Al, uh, that's the goal. I mean, now, if, if by negative campaigning, you mean talking about the voting records and governing records of our opponents, then I think that it's crucial for us to do that. I think that we need to be pointing out what they've done uh, and contrast our solutions with that uh, to, to allow the voters to have an opportunity to see how we got here, the history of the, you know, the various votes and governing decisions that have been made by the Republicans on both sides and uh, how they got us to where we are and how we as libertarians propose a, uh, a, a total break from that and a, a real reform of the way that things are done and, and providing libertarian solutions that are based on ideas like self-ownership, non-aggression, property rights, voluntary solutions, and so forth, and to demonstrate in real, in real terms how those solutions work and why the big government solutions that have come from the Republicans and Democrats did not work. But if you're talking about negative as in mudslinging and trying to bring up personal things that aren't really important or trying to just sling mud in general, that I have no interest in doing. And I, and I know Joe doesn't as well. We didn't do it during the nomination contest and we're not going to do it in the general. Uh, I don't think that it's particularly helpful. Um, I think People have their you know, strong opinions about Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and I don't think that they need us to try to say uh, you know, anything one way or the other in terms of them personally. I think it's more a matter of what they've done and the way that they've conducted themselves uh, more so than any kind of personal attacks on them. And let's see if there were any other... Um... Uh, so, okay, so that was the only one that was asked in the pre-show. Um, and let's see... Um, so yeah, people already want to call in. We're going to go ahead and start the call in because I'm going to answer these questions and actually let me answer a couple of these questions and then we will do the call in. Um, let's see. Uh, Daniel Smoltz says, is that the literal real Spike Cohen? Yes, I am literally Spike Cohen. As I say at the beginning, at the top of the show, uh, I am literally Spike Cohen. Um, uh, um, let's see, uh, can I, uh, Cameron Kogan asked, can I join the Waffle House caucus if there is no Waffle House near me? Cameron, actually, not only can you join, but most of our, a good number of our members join so that they can vicariously eat Waffle House through those of us who live near a Waffle House. So yes. Um, uh, so uh, J.E. Uh, Roast, I think I'm saying that correctly, says, random question, what will the Jorgensen-Cohen's administration attitude, uh, what will the Jorgensen-Cohen administration's attitude towards NASA companies like SpaceX and space travel in general? Will you run for VP of the moon or Mars if Earth doesn't work out? I mean, that's a shot. I mean, we certainly, I think it'd be a lot less competitive because no one lives there. Uh, but in terms of NASA and SpaceX and things like that, I think that we're seeing uh, in the lack of, you know, in the, the, the vacuum of a lack of, uh, you know, leadership or any kind of uh, uh, initiative coming from governments 
in space travel, we're seeing that the market is providing that, that the, there, there is a market demand for space travel and space exploration for a myriad of reasons, everything from you know mining to uh, tourism, uh, to the potential to be able to move humans to uh, another planet, in, in, obviously much further down the, the road, but move them to another planet and terraform them if something goes bad on this planet to have those options, and just the general human desire to explore and expand our horizons. And the market is meeting that. I mean, SpaceX, these rockets that they have now that they can actually launch, and I, I don't know if Dragon was one of them, but they have rockets that can actually launch and then come back down and land exactly where they launched from. I think, or, or they can launch and come down and land some other location, like on a, a, a ship or something like that. I think that's absolutely incredible, the things that are being done. And now, obviously, some of that is being taxpayer funded, but it is a proof of concept that absent the you know government taking money from us to to pay for these things that we may or may not even want that are largely more for political purposes than actual market demand for a thing the market's providing uh voluntary companies that are choosing to do this are are meeting that demand um let's see uh ashton dobney says what is your plan to increase party membership? That's an excellent question. The biggest thing, whether it's increasing party membership, increasing the number, number of people voting libertarian, just general knowledge of libertarianism, changing the cultural conversation away from the, you know, this constant argument between two groups of people about how much more government should grow, how much bigger it should be, how much more expensive it should be, uh, how much more involved in our day-to-day -day lives it should be, and moving it towards a conversation about voluntary solutions, uh, you know, uh, towards you know, does government even need to be involved in this part of our lives? And, and, and if so, what parts of our lives does it even need to be involved in? Um, in order to do that, we have to get people's attention. We have to get our names out there. We have to take bold and strong positions that get us earned media. When we get in front of interviewers, we have to be bold about it. We have to seize the narrative instead of just kind of passively responding to the interviewer questions. We have to take control of things because the audience, you know, we talk a lot about respectability. What are, what do do voters respect? And what we've seen is that respectability is based more on voters respecting what they perceive to be as bold and fearless. If you look at Donald Trump, Donald Trump is a bright orange man uh, who uh, speaks at a low scream and gold plates everything. He has been the butt of pop culture jokes for something like 40 years now. Um, you know, in, in terms of respectability, it's pretty low. The reason he won was because he made, he demonstrated himself. He pretended to be, you know, bold and strong and the only one speaking to the needs of the people. He presented himself as an empathetic character. He pretended that he cared about the concerns of the voters who were voting for him. And he presented his solutions, which were markedly different, or at least appeared to be markedly different than those of his competitors. And that's how he won. So if we're going to be able to win as libertarians, we have to present ourselves as people who care about the needs of people. We have to provide bold solutions after listening to the concerns. We have to demonstrate that we care about the concerns of the voters, of the American people. And then we have to provide bold solutions that are markedly different from those of our competitors. That will help us to stand out. And that will help us with 
you know, increasing party membership that will help us with increasing the number of people voting for not just the top of the ticket, but all the way down the ballot. Uh, we need to coordinate with the various regions and state affiliates, which we've already started doing uh, to make sure that our message is coordinated and on point, that we are across the board in a, in a, in a very uh, dynamic and engaging way, presenting a empathetic and, and, and powerful message of libertarian solutions for the problems that people are facing. Problems that often are being either created or made worse by government. And that's what we propose to do with that. Thank you for that question. Um, expressing disappointment that I am wearing a shirt. Thank you, James. Um, I just want, I just like to note, I've only not worn a short shirt once on a show. I just like to say that this isn't like an ongoing thing. Um, Zach, how we, Zach uh, Molson. And I, by the way, if I say your name wrong, I apologize. I'm trying my best. Um, Zach, either Molson or Mulson says, how will you help down ballot candidates? Uh, in a similar way to what I was just saying about increasing membership, the more attention we get, the more that's going to help down ballot candidates. Now, with that said, we're also going to do direct endorsements and direct promotion of down ballot candidates. I've already started doing that. Joe's been doing that as well, kind of featuring every day or every other day a down ballot candidate that we want to support and especially focusing on the people who are in the most winnable, you know, potentially winnable races, because, you know, we are going to try our best to win the White House. We are going to run to win every expectation, every action that we take is going to be with an eye towards winning the White House. If we are unable to achieve that goal, then at the very least, we want to bring in a record number of votes, which will mean a record number of wins at e more easily winnable races further down the ticket, uh, you know, statewide races, regional races, local races, and things like that, to bring as much attention in as possible to those races. Um, so that's how we, we will be helping on that. Also, my, my former running mate and dear friend Vermin Supreme and Team Supreme have a, a website that they've put up together called Disrupt the Vote, which is for... Uh, libertarian candidates who want to be part of the Supreme Way style of messaging uh, to sign up and get all sorts of help, everything from um, uh, uh, resources for candidates, uh, marketing resources for candidates, free promotion for candidates using the Team Supreme social media reach of nearly 500,000 followers across all social media platforms, free training on uh, messaging and things like that from Team Supreme. So that's another way that from the, you know, from the, you know, our, I guess our, our greater family, including the Jorgensen Cohen ticket and Team Supreme, that we are helping down ballot candidates to be able to reach out as much as possible. And uh, just in general, the, the purpose of of this is to bring as many new people into the fold, into the Libertarian Party. And the, the immediate goal there is to win the most easily winnable races, the, the local and regional and statewide races, with the idea that we also want to win the, 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 the across the state and federal races as well. Um, John Luke Teske says, how did you meet your wife and what does love mean to you? I actually met my wife online and then she came down and visited me. And we fell in love and uh, we went back and forth many times uh, visiting each other. She's from Canada and uh, we uh, we ended up falling in love and uh, or saying remaining in love. And then about a year two, just two years later, we got married. And what does love mean to me? That's a pretty uh, loaded question. But I think from a romantic standpoint, I think love means always being there for each other, um, having an unconditional love and support for one another and uh, just having a passion for having each other in your lives. Um, I didn't know I'd be answering questions like that, so I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about that, but I, I guess that would be um, 
uh, that would be my answer to that. Um, Joseph Hartman says, how about adapting the free pony to be only for the media? When Joe is president, the government would be less of a joke. The media would still be a joke. So press reporters would need to bring their pony IDs to the White House briefings. I have no problem with that idea at all. Um, of course, you know, and we've talked about this before, and I'm, I'm somewhat loath to explain the joke. The ponies, the cheesy bread, all of that stuff has been obvious satire. And the purpose of the satire is to reach out to people who are so disgusted by the way things are going. We know, we all have, and you may even be one of them, but we all have people in our lives who are so disgusted by politics. They're so disgusted by the state of things. They don't want to hear politics from anyone. We know that well over 40% of Americans who were eligible voters, many of them were already registered to vote. They did not vote in the 2016 election. And any study or survey that's been done on them, they all say the same thing. I, you know, It doesn't matter if I vote or not. The politicians aren't listening to us. They all just show up and lie and make up a bunch of promises that we all know aren't true. And all that happens is they end up screwing us over and the government has it out for all of us. And there's no purpose for me to even be participating. I'd rather just have my Tuesday back. That sounds pretty libertarian if you think about it. These are people that if we were able to reach them with a libertarian message about making government less powerful and giving them more control so that those lying politicians couldn't affect their lives as much, they'd probably sign on. But the problem is they don't want to hear anything from anyone, including from us. So for those specific audiences, using satire and humor, much in the way that George Carlin did, using satire and humor, and George Carlin is just one of many, but using that approach, it gets their attention when a politician couldn't. And not only does it get their attention, but they're enjoying it. They don't feel challenged. They don't feel bored. They're just enjoying it. So their cognitive defenses go down. Now they're listening. They're not you know, having some politician say a bunch of nonsense to them that they think isn't true. They're being entertained. And they know there's an underlying political message, but they're just being entertained and they like it. And the longer they listen and the more they enjoy it, the more intrigued they are. Well, what is that political message? What is it that they really uh, you know, are doing? Why are they doing this? What is this all about? And then we hit them with a the message. Then we talk about libertarian solutions. We called it boot pilling and it worked fantastically. We were able to literally poach hundreds at a time of Republican supporters at their events, we were able to get them. And so it's been incredibly effective. It is appropriate for use in those spaces. Uh, but, you know, even during the time that I was campaigning as Vermin's running mate, and, 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 and even now, nothing has changed in that I have always primarily been a serious campaigner. When satire and humor is appropriate, when we can use it to bring people in who would have otherwise not wanted to hear our message, I will absolutely use it. But the rest of the time when I'm dealing with people, especially in this you know, situation right now with the police brutality and the protests and the rioting and so forth, that isn't, in my mind, an immediately appropriate time for satire, at least not for me, not my kind of humor. Um, and so that would be a perfect example of where we are taking a more serious approach. And so and I've always been more of a serious politician with the idea that I can use humor when appropriate. So that's what that is. Um uh, Mark Maresca, this is an excellent question. How will you feel questions pertaining to anarchy itself since reporters are bound to ask sooner or later? I look forward to that, Mark, because here's the thing. 
I was never coming in as some kind of smash the state anarchist. My 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 you know my my campaigning was not going to be me coming in you know wearing a balaclava and throwing Molotov cocktails or or, or even not not even going to that extreme or even just coming in dressed like this or or you know dressed up and saying I am here to end government. We're going to you know we're going to dismantle the government on day one because that's not where we are. Where we are is an ever growing state, and the vast majority of people buying into what we as libertarians call the cult of the omnipotent state, the idea that government power is not illusory, the idea that government power and authority are legitimate things, and that government is essentially a good organization and that we simply need to have the right people in place in order for it to function correctly, even though the founders themselves said that that wasn't the case. So that is our challenge. Our immediate challenge is to talk to voters and to explain to them why things aren't working. And so we don't need to do that while talking about anarchy. We can do that while talking about how the Republicans and the Democrats have leveraged the state with their cronies to harm the vast majority of us, especially those of us with the least, to directly benefit those of us with the most. And we can show that with every single thing, war, immigration, education, uh, jobs, infrastructure, healthcare, higher education, student debt, all of these things, we can show why the Republicans and Democrats have failed, not even failed, how their plan to harm us has worked and how libertarian solutions worked. And when people ask me about anarchy and when people say, well, isn't that just going to be riots in the streets and you know people uh, setting things on fire and, and people attacking each other? And I'll say, no, that's the status quo that we currently have that you're referring to. But I will immediately pivot back to the libertarian message and, and, and more specifically the Jorgensen Cohen message of using libertarian solutions to directly benefit us. So I'm not going to hide from it, but I also don't plan to run primarily on it. I invite them to ask me about it. It is a briar patch. I, I very much await being thrown into because then I get to make the Republicrats, without realizing they were going to have to do it, force them to defend the system that they created. Because when they start talking about what they perceive to be anarchy, and I say, actually, that's what we're living under now. Why are we living under the thing that you're so scared of? Why do we live under this chaos? Force them to defend their precepts and their policies and their solutions that got us to where we are. So that's how I will be doing that. Um... Eric Daly, does Joe have a plan to combat the Fed? Our plan is to end the Fed, to explain how the Fed has put us in this situation, to explain how the Fed is endlessly printing out money for political purposes because it's easier for them to just print out money and lend it to themselves or lend it to the Treasury and you know pay themselves back at low interest, but thereby you know driving down the value of our dollars than to just tax us because we'd fight a tax for more war. We'd fight attacks for, you know, all of these different terrible plans that we don't agree with. We'd fight attacks to continue running the war on drugs. We'd fight taxes on all of that. But if they just run it up and spend it, they don't tax us any extra. A lot of us don't realize what's happening there. And that makes it more insidious than taxation because it is still sapping from our wealth, but it's doing it in the most backhanded and insidious and disingenuous way. Because when they print out endless fiat notes. And I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but this is what I say. When they print out endless fiat notes, when they print out endless Federal Reserve notes without creating any subsequent, you know, correlating additional value, they're just driving down the value of each one of those notes, including the ones we already have in our wallet and in our bank accounts. And that's why they have a monopoly on the currency system. 
So our idea is end the Fed and introduce free market banking, allow the market to have competing currencies, which will actually cause them to want to have, you know, it's, we talk about this every time. You can get services from one of two ways. One is through competing providers in a free market who compete with each other to try to get your uh, uh, business. So they do their best to try to give you as much service as possible where the consumer, you are king or queen, or you can get it through a monopoly where they don't really have to serve you that well because they're the only game in town and they know it and you know it. They know that you know it. And so they just give you whatever they want to give you. And that way, you know, you still get the thing that you want and they get the money, but you're not getting a good value. Well, that's what we have with currency. The U.S. government claims a monopoly on the issuance of legal tender. And as a result of that, we have to use that money, no matter how much it loses value. And it's reached a point where, you know, we talk about that, uh, you know, the only two things in life that are sure are death and taxes. Well, you can add inflation to that too now. It's been going on for over, uh, it's, what, 107 years now that the cost of living just steadily goes up every single year to the point where most of us don't even realize why that is. Imagine a reality where the cost of living didn't just constantly go up because competing currency providers would do everything they can to make that currency as valuable as possible, possible to possibly even gain value over time, or at the very least not lose value because they want you to use their currency because they get a little piece of it every time you use it. Imagine a situation where the cost of living doesn't go up, where it may even slightly go down, or at the very least, it doesn't skyrocket up over time. That's what we could have with free market banking. That would be our policy with that. Um, let's see. Oscar Herrera. Hey, man, how are you doing? Um, will you, James Peace, will you bring whalers to the moon? I certainly won't stop them. Certainly won't stop them. Um a little bit of crosstalk between some people here. I'll let them keep at it. Um, uh, Gary Freeman, is Vermin going to campaign with you? And can he have a cabinet position like Secretary Secretary of State or maybe Court Jester? We've actually had it floated uh, that uh, Vermin will say that uh, in exchange for his endorsing uh, Joe, uh, when we and Joe and myself, when we get elected, he will be in charge of uh, giving out the free ponies. Um, so that's something that's that's pretty much in the works. And he does plan to campaign. We are planning to campaign together again in the times when uh, when satire is going to be the best way to reach people who don't want to hear a serious political message. You know, Vermin is a and I, and I need to say this: Vermin is a beloved political satirist, a well-respected political satirist who is beloved by millions. And the vast majority of the people understand that he has a serious message. And he has been an incredibly tremendous asset in, and besides being just an amazing person in general, he has been an incredibly amazing asset in bringing people into the Libertarian Party. I have nothing but good things to say about him. And we will definitely be campaigning together uh, in those, in those times. Uh, Archie Flower. Hey, how are you doing? Um, Steve Drowlett says, I, you're the man. I hope you get some sort of a platform. Thanks. I have this one, but thank you. Uh, John S. Hurtley, go spike. Thank you, John. Um, uh, Eli Monte Stewart. And I'm going to go ahead and open the calls because that should be fun. So if you call 813-644-2722, uh, we will find out together how good of an idea it was for me to open the calls to the public. Um where was the question that I just had? Um, this is the fun part about doing your own show. Um, 
Eli Monte Stewart, uh, I know you're someone who appeals to people in my age group, 18 to 24, but there's difficulty in convincing people my age to vote, let alone for someone who's neither Democrat or Republican. How would you convince younger people to vote and change the perspective of voting for libertarian third party? Eli, that's an amazing, uh, is it Eli or Ellie? I, I probably should know that. Um, that's an excellent, <clears throat> excuse me, that's an excellent question. Uh, one thing I've learned is that young people, uh, 18 to 24, 18 to 30, whatever the cutoff there is, aren't really any different than anyone else. They're just younger. And the big thing with them is that that age group specifically, more so than really any other age group before, or at least in in modern times, is really being left behind. I knew, I knew it. Here we go. Um, So I will get back to your question shortly, Eli. 682 area code. uh, Who am I speaking with? Hello? Hi. This is him. This is Spike. How are you doing, Chris? You are watching me live. There's just a delay in what you're hearing uh in 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 what in, in what you see on the stream and me actually doing it. It's it's up to like 20 second delay. I think that would be a great opportunity to do so. I mean, obviously, I don't, I'm not sure that I would spend the entire debate doing that, but I would certainly find a way to pepper in as many people as possible as specific examples of how, you know, Democrats and Republicans have failed and how these individuals have, you know, provided solutions, especially if we did well enough where there were possibly more than one debate. I would certainly do that as well. Um, so uh, thank you for your thank you for your question. They're both named Jeff. Well, see, there you go. It makes it even easier to, to call them both out at the same time. So thank you very much for your call. I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. Bye. And I know I just missed someone. Uh, but So if you call back, uh, please be sure to call back. Um, and guys, this is the fun of doing a show and also keeping track of the of the comments while it's happening. So going back to Eli's question, uh, the answer is that, you know, the youngest generation is being completely left behind. Uh, their wages have not gone up that much. And the cost of living has consistently gone down, uh, uh, or the cost of living has consistently gone up. And now we're getting another call. This is perfect. 405 area code, who am I speaking with? Uh, hi, Jack. How are you doing? That's great. Uh, do you have a question for me? Should the people in charge of of tagging bobcats be in charge of sexual education? I think that that's a question for parents and local school districts, honestly. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. This is the fun of live calls. So, this generation left behind. Cost of living has skyrocketed. Wages haven't gone up that much. And they're being drawn to some very authoritarian solutions that aren't going to work that well. Continuing to have government even more involved when government injection into the market has caused that reality in the first place. And so it's important for us to 
present ourselves as empathetic characters, just like with anyone else, but especially to people who almost the entire generation has been left behind. Demonstrate that we actually care, that we understand what their problem is, that we are hearing, listening to their issues, and we are presenting an actual solution, the libertarian solution. In sales, they call it the feel felt found method. I see what, how you feel. Other people also feel that way, have felt that way. And we have found that this way that we're proposing works. And here's the next one. 509 area code. I think I know who I'm speaking with. I love you too. Wait, say something. Oh no, here we go. Okay, now say something. Hello again. There we go, now they can hear you. Now they can hear you. Thank you so much. I love your face. I love you too, bye-bye. 843 area code, uh, who am I speaking with? Hey, this is Taylor. Hey Taylor, how are you doing? Good. That's Hanging great. Out in Charleston. Keep What's my head that? down. I'm sorry? I'm hanging out in Charleston, keeping my head down. Oh, that's good, man. That's good. You got a question for me? Yeah, I was going to ask what your plan would be to transition the welfare state over to more of a voluntary uh, type situation where it wouldn't be taxed from the individual. That's an excellent question. So, uh, and this comes from, you know, the sort of the radical libertarian way of looking at things in terms of harm reduction. So our, our number one proposal, our number one priority is to reduce the harm that is happening to people as a result of actions of the state. And what is the welfare state, but the government basically going into to otherwise healthy people, uh, going over, beating them up, taking everything from them, using a little bit of what they stole from them to give them, you know, a crutch and some food and saying, hey, look, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have that crutch and you wouldn't have that little bit of food, even though they're the ones who put them in that position of needing needing that in the first place. Now, how bad of a, would it be for, of us to show up and go, oh, you poor thing. Look at this terrible thing that's happened for, to you. We'll fix this, and then we take their crutch and their food. So our priority is not to you know, kick people off of welfare or anything like that. Our priority is to remove those harmful actions that have put people in a position where they need welfare in the first place. And so that would be pressuring states to remove the occupational licensing and actually using the Department, Department of Justice to, uh, to challenge occupational licensing laws as a First Amendment violation, as a violation of people's right to be able to uh, you know, start businesses, as a unfair criminalization of poor entrepreneurialism, of, of, of people in poverty who are being entrepreneurs, to help bring them up so that you know, when, I, when I did uh, uh, door knocking tours in housing projects, Almost everyone I spoke to had some kind of a side hustle, side job they were doing to try to get ahead. These are people that were living on, you know, welfare and food stamps and, and, and housing vouchers and in, in public housing. And they didn't want to be there. They wanted to get ahead, but they couldn't afford the thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars that it would cost them to be able to legally mow lawns or cut hair or braid hair or you know, make food for catering or, I mean, this was not, you know, these weren't people trying to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, rocket scientists or neurosurgeons. These were people doing stuff that there's no reason for the government or really anyone else to be telling them how they can do it. And they couldn't afford those compliance costs. So they were stuck where they were. And imagine how many people they'd be able to be able to employ if they'd be able to do that. So a, a big part of our structure would be to, of our plan would be to allow people to rise out of poverty by removing the barriers that allow them to do so. 
and also removing barriers to mutual aid, like laws that make it illegal for you to feed homeless people without a license in, mo in many states. Uh, we would actively challenge these things as violations of people's rights and, and use whatever pressure we could to remove those things so that people can lift themselves up and, 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 and turn around and help each other and so that people can lift each other out so that they won't need welfare in the first place. But in terms of actually ending welfare or cutting off people's checks or anything like that, when you look at all the other things we want to do, ending the wars, ending the war on drugs, ending the war on sex mm -hmm. work, sound money over over bad fiat currency, you know, removing the barriers for to, 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 to entry for people that want to get out of poverty, cutting off people's checks that they use to be able to survive is, is absolutely at the bottom. It's not even a priority of ours. I agree. And I wanted to ask you about uh, maybe transitioning to like a voluntary way where the citizens wouldn't be taxed just based off of uh, their income and whatnot, but instead you would have corporations voluntarily able to give into a fund that's like a nonprofit, so there's less administrative overhead because the government is inefficient, and then they would be it's like the companies could voluntarily give in, but say Amazon didn't give in, they would you know get held by the consumer. I believe that the consumer has power in the wallet. What do you think about a system like that? I think anything that encourages those who have to give to, to those who have not, especially anything that's based on social pressure, which is, a, I think people underestimate how powerful social pressure is and, and that you know, leverages social pressure to, uh, instead of using a coercive authority to force people into it, is something I'd be happy to look at. I, I certainly can't, you know, right now live without knowing more details, say, yes, we would absolutely do that or no, we wouldn't. But mm -hmm. just in general, anything that encourages uh, uh, you know, voluntary solutions that are based on charity and mutual aid. That is the way. That is the way to pull people out of poverty is simply allowing us to do so rather than, you know, trying to force people to force people into poverty and then tax everyone, including those poor people, to give the poor people just enough scraps to stay alive. What an inhumane way of doing things when we could simply allow mm -hmm. them to build themselves out of poverty so that they wouldn't need welfare. Again, this isn't about ending welfare as much as ending the need or demand for welfare so that people wouldn't be able to qualify for welfare because they're doing so much better that they wouldn't need it in the first place. Uh, that would always be the way that we would that we would go for it. Thanks so much, Spike. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And by the way, um, I will be going through uh, in the next day or so any uh, any uh, of these because there's no way I'm going to be able to get to all of these questions. But any of these questions that I did not uh, was not able to get to, um, I will uh, I will personally answer uh, as you will see it as Money Waters Media. But that will be me actually uh, answering the questions that that come in. Um, let's see. Okay. There we go. And we have two calls. So I will take the first one. 214 area code. Please call back. I have to take this first one that came in. Uh, 401 area code. Uh, who am I speaking with? Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, Spike, this is um, Adam Carbone. Uh, big fan of yours. And uh, congratulations on the nomination, by the way. Thank you, Adam. And, I appreciate um, it. Absolutely. Um, so currently, I'm I'm running uh, for mayor of my town of Cranston, Rhode Island, okay. and I'm running a very satirical campaign. Okay. And I I have a question for you of 
what would your advice be during these crazy times to balance satire and being sensitive to, you know, the times? Because I found it like going into it, nothing was happening. So it, right. I kind of drew parallels to like Vermin's campaign, how he, it was some funny stuff, but then also serious stuff. Right, and I was, right. I'm kind of finding myself in a difficult position of trying not to be insensitive, but still coming at it with humor. Because when I started, it wasn't like that. And and that's an excellent question. So I, I actually sort of touched on that briefly uh, on a previous question, but I'm glad you brought this up. That is the biggest challenge, isn't it? Because we never yeah. want voters or even people that are just paying attention to us. We never want anyone to think that we're making fun of their situation. And that is a very right. fine line. When we are doing satire, we are making fun of the people who stand over us and presume authority over yeah. us and make these absurd promises that we all know they're not going to keep. And they just leave us to go, well, which one's the lesser liar? Which one's the less terrible person? Whereas right. it's a fine line between that and it having the appearance that we're making fun of the person we're actually speaking to or the issues that they face. The one thing I will say, and have you gone to disruptthevote.com yet and signed up? I have not. I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to do that because Vermin, far more so than me, has perfected using satire in such a way that uh, they that you know people don't feel like he's making fun of them. They feel like he, they recognize that he's trolling the people who have created these problems or made them worse. Yeah. I mean, this is a man who goes to protests, who goes to very heated protests, you know, dressed up in his getup and uses humor and yeah. satire directed at the police, directed at the people who often are trying to provoke the protest into becoming something worse and in, in calming down tension using humor so that even if things go south they don't go as poorly as they would have gone if someone hadn't been there using humor almost as sort of a rodeo clown type of mentality in the midst of literally i mean there are, there are pictures of him standing in between protesters and and police who are approaching uh in riot gear so uh, the one thing i will say is that if you find yourself in a situation where it's that tight line i tend it i will tell you this i tend to go serious so if there's any question as to whether what I'm doing could be perceived as me making fun of the uh, of the, the the person that I'm trying to reach out to to the the voter to the person who is suffering acutely from the abuses of the state or just being left behind by the system in general. I always go to seriousness because the last yeah. I would rather lose the opportunity to to use humor in that moment to reach someone. I would rather do that then end up having a situation where I have inadvertently made people think I'm making fun of them. Um, So that's my rule of thumb. But again, I would encourage you to go to Disrupt the Vote. If you're already doing more of a humorous type of thing anyway, I would encourage you to reach out to them. Uh, They have all sorts of resources. And Vermin is the expert in being able to do that pivot. Because he deals with stuff like reaching out to people who are, you know, uh, contemplating self-harm. And reaching out to them to let them know that he loves them and wants them to get help and he wants them to, you know, live a better life. And what a fine line to tread there to not make Mm -hmm. the person who is considering self-harm think that he's making fun of them. So um, that would be my answer to that. And I have to – this this person has called in three times (laughs) while I've been talking. But but I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thank Thank you, man. Bye. 214 area code. Who am I speaking with? Hey, uh, this is Ron Valderrama from Dallas, Texas. How you doing? Hey, Ron, how are you doing? Good, good. Hey, I appreciate you fielding all these calls. It's awesome. Uh, I personally have uh, 
been pretty unaware of who was actually going to be uh, getting the nomination here. So, um, congrats on that, by the way. Uh, Thank so you. I wanted to. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of these questions are awesome that you're fielding them because uh, we kind of know as libertarians kind of our thought on it, but we never know how to answer people who we're talking to. Right. Try to spread the word. And so uh, one area I was hoping you could just touch on is uh, kind of the libertarian stance on healthcare. Okay. I know that's kind of a broad question, but I think hopefully, you, hopefully you're picking up what I'm saying here. Yeah, yeah. So here, here's what I can do. I can give you, because obviously when you say what is the libertarian stance on X, there's probably like four different ones based on different schools of thought and so forth. I can give you my thoughts and what, what the Jorgensen Cohen campaign is saying and proposing. If you look at the, and this is sort of a, obviously a, a, a 30,000 foot view of where we are. If you look at when healthcare, because the problem is that healthcare, the cost of healthcare and the, and problems with access to healthcare, the cost of healthcare is skyrocketing relative to just the overall cost of living increase. And Correct. that was not the case up until roughly around the period of World War II. Uh, the cost of healthcare roughly rose and fell somewhat correlated to just the overall cost of living. But then something happened. During World War II, there was the threat that FDR, in order to keep the cost of, because at that point, with the war effort, the U.S. government was easily the biggest employer of American people. Almost all Americans were in some way employed by the American government. And so in order to keep the cost of the war effort down, FDR proposed uh, price ca or, uh, uh, wage caps, wage ceilings, where you could maximum wages, where you could not get anything more than that. And in order to be able to get around those wage caps or the, the possibility of wage caps, because they would have been applied retroactively, in order to be able to get the best workers, employers started finding ways around it. And one of the ways they found around it was offering pensions. And the other way around it was offering health insurance. Now, up until that point, health insurance was kind of similar to car insurance. You paid a small amount and it just covered catastrophic damage. It's not like when you when you buy car insurance, it doesn't take care of your your, your routine stuff. It doesn't take care of your gas or, you know, it doesn't take care oil of changes, yeah. it, oil changes and tire rotations and stuff like that. It takes care of, if nothing else, the liability of if you cause an accident and have to cover them. And, and most people get comprehensive coverage where it handles you know their situation as well that's that's what i have but it, it that's all it was for health insurance up until then was a small in some cases nuisance fee that some people paid where if they had a catastrophic health situation that they couldn't afford the health insurance would pay for it but but now with this new thing that was being again a, a way to get around the wage caps they just offered it where it basically started paying your healthcare bills uh, as a way to get around those the proposed wage caps or the threatened wage caps well now you had a you had two things that happened there was a separation between the person who was purchasing the healthcare consuming the healthcare and the person who was paying for it and the other thing that happened was that the red tape involved in complying with insurance regulations drove up the cost of healthcare. So you had a separation between consumer and payer and regulations that drove up the cost. And that made the cost of healthcare start to rise slowly over the next, uh, what, 25 years or so, uh, which brings us to 1958, 1960, well, the 1960s, when they started having uh, the talk about Medicare and Medicaid, the idea that because healthcare had gotten, was getting so expensive, that they wanted to be able to provide healthcare to the elderly and the poor. And how hard, you know, it was hard to oppose that because who who doesn't want poor people and elderly people to have health care? Well, what happened 
when they injected that is now the cost totally skyrocketed, totally began to skyrocket because there's even more separation where entire segments of the population are almost completely removed from the actual paying for their health care that they're consuming. And Medicare and Medicaid compliance costs made the cost of, as well as the insurance costs, which have been kind of slowly building over time at this point, have been caused the, the cost of health care to skyrocket even further. Right now, we're at a point where uh, I, I read an estimate that 70% of the cost of health care is nothing but insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid compliance costs. If you simply removed that red tape it would reduce the cost of healthcare by 70%. That's before you get into the reductions of costs that would happen if you allowed for more competition across state borders, uh, if, you, uh, if, you, if you now had healthcare consumers being the actual purchasers, which always brings the, 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 the price down. Um, there are so many things that could happen. And again, every single time government has further injected itself into the healthcare market, it has caused the price to skyrocket. And we now have a situation where the U.S. government spends more money per patient of taxpayer dollars. They spend more taxpayer dollars per patient than almost any other country. There are like four or five or six or something countries that spend more. And that's before you factor in the amount that we're paying out of pocket on average for healthcare costs. Mm. We spend something like right. three times the developed nation average on healthcare. So the system has clearly failed because we have a great healthcare system in terms of access and technology and outcomes, but the cost is just beyond reasonable. So our approach would be to, again, not try to take away people's health care. We don't want to take away grandma's breathing tube. What we want to do is remove the regulations and the regulatory burdens that made the cost of health care go up. Not only does that reduce the cost of health care, but it also reduces the cost of entitlements like Social Security and Medicare, which are so driven by health care costs. So it has many uh, benefits to it. But again, the idea is eventually to allow it to be a fully free market system as we transition away from it, not by taking away health care from people, but by removing the regulatory burdens and getting the, the cronies who have written all of these laws uh, to their own uh, benefit. There's an entire thing that was actually an episode of Dirty Money that talked about how uh, uh, drug companies are, are squatting on old patents, that they simply buy the patents, gut the companies, do no more research, and just jack up the price of, the, of, these, mm -hmm. of these drugs. And that's, a, that's just one of many examples of where harmful government interventions in the market allow cronies to benefit massively without providing any actual value to the market at the expense of all of us, but especially of those who are the most marginalized and the most in need. So we would do away with those things and bring us to a true free market of healthcare as much as we could. So I hope that answers your question. Hey, that's pretty awesome. I appreciate the, uh, the time. Good luck. Thank on the you. Campaign. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So it, there, it is guaranteed that there are several several questions here i have not answered um uh but i will go through a little bit what is it 856 i'll stay on a little bit longer and like i said anything that i didn't get a chance to answer i will be going through uh and answering after the fact it might be tomorrow or a couple days from now but i, I will get through um Napoleon Phoenix, mandatory vaccines. We are against va mandatory vaccines. No one should be forced. No one should be forcing you not to put anything in your body. No one should be forcing you to put anything in your body. And I say that as someone who genuinely believes that vaccines are not harmful, but it's not up to me to decide. Um, and so I will be taking this call now. 832 area code. Who am I speaking with? 
Hello? Hi. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, what has to happen to get one of you guys on, like, a main stage or a debate? So the short answer is, in order to be able to get on a, a presidential debate, we have to get 15% or more in two reputable polls. And I, I did the, I don't know if you're still watching this, but I did the, the finger quotes there. It is left up to the Commission on Presidential Debates to decide what is or is not a reputable poll. Uh, but the short answer is we have to get enough attention to be scoring 15% or more in, in enough opinion polls for them to, uh, for them to decide. Uh, and so we have a, we have a goal toward in a plan towards using viral marketing and, and, and getting in front of as many people as possible to spread our message so that we can do it. Gary and Bill got very close. They got, I think 11% on one poll and 13% on another. And there was actually a petition that said, you know, that's good enough. They should be able to get on the debate stage. Cause it was much lower when Ross Perot got on. And as you know, Ross Perot being able to get on that debate stage was what allowed him to at one point be leading in some opinion. Polls. He did so well in that debate uh, that uh, until he dropped out and then came back in at one point, he was actually potentially a favorite to win. So if we're able to get on that debate stage, I believe all bets are off. I think that we have a real shot of actually winning this election if we're able to do that. Um, so that is the goal. And we, we do plan to use uh, viral marketing and, uh, you know, pressure campaigns for, for major media to, to, you know, get us on with our bold messaging and bold libertarian solutions to the problems that people face uh, for us to be able to get on and actually be on that debate stage. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's see. J.C. Cook, Spike Cohen is my spirit animal. I love you, man. Thank you so much. Um, Robert Daniel. Good point, Robert. And the L, the Libertarian Party needs to be included in the poll. This is an excellent point. Hold I, I'm going to take this call. 863 Erico, please hold. I'm just finishing up answering someone's question. Um, so just please hold for me. Uh, so uh, like Robert was just saying, in some of these polls that have been out in some of these polls the uh they didn't even bother putting the libertarian party as an option people had to actually say that they were voting libertarian or that they were voting for gary or, or gary johnson so it is absolutely crucial if they are going to require that we get at least 15 percent in two or more polls then they need to have us as an option we're the third largest political party we're not some fringe party that has a few thousand followers we have 50 state ballot access we are a we are you know again the third largest political party there's absolutely no reason that we shouldn't be included in those polls so thank you for bringing that up uh i think it was his name's robert yeah, Robert, thank you. So, um, 863 Area Code, who am I speaking with? John Teske in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. And I was so happy to have you answer my question. And I apologize if I talk you off guard. Uh, but sometimes I really feel like um, we get so caught up in policy and politics that we tend to forget that we are human and that we have wives and oh, families yeah. and colleagues mm -hmm. that we care about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, my, my question to you is in any advice to any down ballot candidates and this in regards to balancing, you know, your political life and your activism in regards to the interpersonal relationships that you truly cherish, you know, like, you know, what advice could you give to a down ballot candidate in regards to balancing those two elements of one's life? That is an excellent question. And it is one that I am in the process of learning for myself. Uh, 
I guess the short answer is you have to carve out time. And my um, uh, manager, Matt Hicks, has done an excellent job of carving out time and making a point of um, of making sure that I have a certain amount of time each day. Um, and also, uh, so I, I would say if you don't have an actual manager, if you're if you're doing this for yourself, you just have to carve out time. That is your time for yourself and for the people you care about. And obviously, there will be times you'll have to be flexible on that if you're traveling or doing something like that, depending on, you know, if you're running for like a statewide office or, you know, if you have to, as part of your campaigning, do door-to-door petitioning to get yourself on the ballot. You know, there's there's many different things. There are going to be times you won't be able to do it, but go ahead and carve out that time with the idea that you... Um, with the idea that you may have to, you know, eat into that time on certain days or whatever, but go ahead and carve it out with the idea that the standard is that you have that time for yourself and your loved ones. The other thing is make sure when you're reaching out to your loved ones, say, there are times when I will be, seems like I won't be available. I'll be somewhat removed because I'm so distracted by what I'm doing, but understand that I am here. I do still cherish you. I am am still glad to have you in my life. And please reach out to me and please, you know, I will do my best to make myself available to you. And I've found that when I tell that to people, they're very respectful of the idea that it may take me a while to get back to them. It may, I may miss some, some things that I wouldn't otherwise miss, um, but that I am trying. And they also tend to be very uh, understanding and trying to make sure that I know that you know, they're available for me if, if, if I need them. Um, so, uh, so that would be my answer to that carve out time and make sure that you stay connected with the people that you're close to easier said than done. I'm literally saying that right now as someone who doesn't even know what my schedule looks like, I'm told it pretty much every day, but you have to carve that time out and you have to for yourself and for the people you care about. Uh, because when all is said and done, whether you get elected or not, those are the people who are still going to be there with you. Um, so I hope that I hope that answers your question. It definitely does, and I hope that you know you're living by your own advice and that you're <laughs> taking care of yourself. As the one true libertarian said earlier in the chat, I hope you're drinking lots of water. You're actually getting some sleep and resting because uh, we need you out there putting forth the message without sacrificing uh, those who love you to do so. I appreciate the time. And, you know, drink lots of water. Stay well-rested and stay beautiful, Spike. I will do it. Thank you, man. And you do the same as well. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, and to answer Clayton, yes, I am taking care of myself. I am getting pretty close to eight hours a day of sleep. I am drinking lots of water. My wife has been fantastic in making sure that I'm well-fed and that I'm being treated well. Um, my campaign team has been terrific about making sure that I have time to myself and that I'm not, you know, getting overwhelmed by this. Um, and with the understanding that, you know, I think we're only going up from here in terms of, you know, um, in terms of attention and, and viability and so forth. So um, I'm certain that it will definitely get more, uh, more challenging over time. But I have a great team around me and family. Hi, thanks for calling. I, I know I've missed your call a few times. Um, who am I speaking with? Sorry, Spike. It's uh, Magellan UK, the Libertarian Social. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you? Um, I- sorry, I'm sorry to call a few times. It's a bit awkward in that. Um, congrats on the by the way. Thanks. You're, you're breaking up a lot, but thank you for your congratulations. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask a quick question. What is your opinion on how some Libertarians have been supporting 
basically Donald Trump is forcing a form of martial law. He wants a federal troops um, on the street. And if, um, it's a bit hypocritical and symbolic of how protesters were kicked out of Elliott uh, Square in Washington. It was left the man who fought for liberty and freedom in the States. Right. So, like I said, you were breaking up a little bit there, but I think I got the gist of your question. I haven't found a lot of libertarians who have been supportive of the martial law, but I have found a lot of libertarians who are primarily focused on the looting and, and damage to you know sm- businesses, including small businesses and homes and private property, more so than the protests or the police brutality. Uh, and I can I can empathize with with their position because I have seen you know these these folks that have small businesses that have seen them destroyed uh, overnight uh, because of looting related to you know that happened a- after you know after the protests or during the protests. So I I certainly can empathize with that position, but we actually, I made a a pretty long video about a six minute bit long video earlier today talking about the looting and how we got here. Uh, First of all, you have peaceful unarmed protesters who have been protesting across the country uh, uh, to, you know, just to make it clear their frustration with police brutality and state violence against, especially against marginalized communities, but really against all of us. And uh, often the police will treat these protests, these unarmed protesters, like they are the enemy. And they'll cordon them into very small areas, and they'll, they'll focus all of their police resources on that area and tell them to break up. And as they're breaking up and dispersing, they start firing pepper balls at them, which are like these paintball-like projectiles that are filled with uh, a chemical similar to, tear, to uh, pepper spray, which... They're less lethal, but people have died from being hit by them before. Uh, and using tear gas, which is banned by the Geneva Convention, uh, they could never use it overseas against enemy combatants, but they use it here uh, against our, our loved ones and neighbors and ourselves. Um, and so they, they create this very tense uh, and sometimes violent situation. At the same time, by uh, by putting all their resources into this one area and leaving most of the rest of the city or, or county or region or wherever they are, leaving the rest of that area largely unpleased, they are encouraging opportunists to come in and do looting and 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 and, and to do you know uh, destroying property and to to robbing businesses, including small businesses, and destroying homes and everything else, and causing fires and everything. All of this happens as a result of the actions and inactions of a militarized police state that is treating us and our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones, especially the most marginalized among us, like we are the enemy. We're not the enemy. We're their neighbors. And again, none of these protests would even be happening if we didn't keep having situations where police were killing innocent people, sometimes just casually murdering them just because they can. So this is definitely something that falls on the feet of the police state. It is a reason to end qualified immunity. It is a reason to end the militarization of the police, both in their armaments and their mentality. It is a reason to maximize the civil liberties that are often not afforded to us, including to the most uh, marginalized among us, people of color, gender and sexual minorities, the poor, the homeless, religious and ethnic minorities, uh, immigrants and so forth, but but really being denied to all of us, but especially those groups. Um, It is a reason to and the war on drugs and the war on sex work and to free the people that are that are being held in prison for co- commerce that government decided shouldn't be allowed. It is a reason to end uh, civil asset forfeiture, which is where the government takes 
uh, all of the property of people who have been accused of crimes, even without convicting them. And if the people are found not guilty, they have to actually sue the government to get their own property back. Um, so these are all things that lend themselves to things that need to end in order for the tensions that they created to end, uh, which would also end the looting and violence. So I think that, the, you know, I, I understand libertarians who are concerned with damage to private property. I am absolutely one of them. I think damaging people's homes and businesses is not the way to move forward on this. Uh, but I also recognize who created these conditions in the first place and what we need to do to stop these conditions so that they never happen again. So I hope that answered your question. My question perfectly but completely in agreement with you. I mean, that, the state needs to be more concerned with stopping the rioting rather than looking at what started the rioting. Right, it's, exactly. It's like, it's like a, a firefighter putting out a fire and then just saying, well, that's it, let's go. No, they would be like, well, well how did the fire start? We got to look. There's an oily rag. Is that it? Maybe. Exactly, exactly. But I, I, I completely agree. And the other thing that I, you know, the thing that people talk about is this whole, uh, Donald Trump saying that he wants to put Antifa on the possible uh, since Antifa isn't an organization or anything like that. Um, do you feel that this is a way of the state to condemn, uh, to just basically bring the house down on anyone who they deem to be a terrorist? Because they could easily say, oh, this guy's against the government. He's automatically Antifa, same way as in World War Two when they had Japanese Americans, they were like, this guy's Japanese, he's automatically supporting Japan in World War II. Yes, so come and yes. Come and cap. Yes, that is exactly what they have done. A, a government that says that it is illegal to be anti-fascist, first of all, they've tipped their hand a lot more than I think they may have intended to if they want to actually make being against fascism a terrorist act. Second of all, Antifa, like you said, there is no organization called Antifa. Antifa is short is shorthand for being anti-fascist. If you are a libertarian, you are inherently against fascism and any other form of violent statism. So libertarians are Antifa in that respect. It would be one thing to say we are going to go after the black bloc, for example, who often will use, uh, which is an actual somewhat more of an organization that actually uses certain non-defensive violent tactics. That would be one thing. But to simply say we're going against anyone who is Antifa, meaning, again, anti-fascist, where there is no really defining characteristic other than being against fascism, where there is no organization. They have labeled every single American who is not either pro-fascism or neutral to fascism as being potentially a terrorist, which means not only are we now uh, under suspicion of violating the law, but because of the laws that we have in place, we don't get a trial. You could lose your right. You could lose everything. You don't get a trial. Mm. You don't get an attorney. You can be sent overseas for extraordinary rendition and put on soil where they're allowed to torture you. You could be waterboarded. You could be put in a, a detention center like Gitmo and held indefinitely without trial or even a stated reason for holding you for the rest of your life. And all they'd have to say is, well, he's an Antifa terrorist. We had to do it. He's a terrorist. So, yes, I absolutely believe that whether intended or not, this will potentially, if this is not stopped, if this, if he does this, so far he's only threatened to do it, but if this actually happens, if they officially say that Antifa being anti-fascist is terrorism, that will open up the majority of Americans to being labeled terrorists the very moment they do anything the government doesn't like. So I hope that answers your question. That completely answers my question, Spike. Right, I'm going to get going because I have no idea how much this is charging me from coin for me. Like, okay. uh, all right. Well, I hope I, it's not too much. I but... hope you're staying. I hope you and your family are staying safe. I hope you're doing well. Um, 
as I said in Berman's thing, uh, I would I, I wanted Berman to win the presidency candidacy, but unfortunately, the Libertarian Party has chosen, and if that's democracy, well, that's democracy. So uh, I wish you. you luck. I wish Joe luck, and I wish you luck in your future endeavors. Hopefully, we'll have a chat soon, maybe on Zoom or something. But take care, my friend. Thank you. You take care too. Thank you. Three three zero area code. Who am I speaking with? Hello. Hello. Hi. Good evening. It's Mike. Good to talk to you. I'm really going to enjoy watching your podcast tonight. Um, well, thank you. Not a problem. I'll get to my question real quick before you see you keep moving along. Okay. I'm a former U.S. Marine that uh, wasted seven months of his life over in Afghanistan a few years ago. I, I'm sorry. I'm having, a, I'm having a real hard time hearing what you're asking me. I apologize. Oh, that's okay. Um, let me see if I can fix that real quick for you. Okay. And by the way, two six nine area code. Um, please try calling back shortly, and I will. I will try to get you next time. All right. Hopefully, you can hear me a little bit. Yeah, this is much better. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, I was a former U.S. Marine, and I spent seven months back in 2011 in Afghanistan when that okay. good old waste of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious to know, real quick, what is your, your plan and Joe's plan on the uh, military in general? And all that, what they do, being all over the world and everything. Yeah. So I was kind of curious what your overall defense plan was, and mm-hmm. I appreciate you guys running. I'm behind you 100, percent and I wish you well. And I will let you go so you can answer the question get some other people on. I appreciate that. Thank you, and I will definitely be answering that question. Um, so to answer your question, uh, the Jorgensen Cohen administration, really the Jorgensen plan, and I've signed on to it 100%, is what she calls a one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. And the idea behind that is we end the wars. We bring all of the troops home, not just from the hot wars like in Syria and uh, and and you know uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and you know the areas where they're actively fighting, but from Japan from Germany, from Djibouti, and that's actually a place where there are troops. Troops are in Djibouti, and we're going we're gonna to get the troops off Djibouti. And, you know, all, all the other places where troops are stationed, in some cases, basically permanently, all of them will come back home to the U.S., where they belong. And we will keep whatever military is sufficient to protect us against aggression, because that's the point of the military, the U.S. military is not supposed to be advancing American political, American government and American crony political causes around the world at our expense. Because again, the way that they fund these endless wars, and in some cases these genocides, like what's happening in Yemen, that would also be put to an end. The way they're financing that isn't through taxing us. It's through spending and printing out endless Federal Reserve notes, which they lend to themselves at a very low interest rate. But by printing out endless amounts of money, it drives down the value. It is the most insidious way of stealing from someone to print out more of what they already have and force them to keep using it even as it loses value. That is how they fund the wars because they know that they could never say to us, well, uh, we got to keep this war going, so we're going to raise your taxes. We're going to like double your taxes. They, we, would never, we would never approve of that. We would vote away anyone who tried to do that. But if they just endlessly print out money and lend it to themselves, a lot of us don't realize what's going on, which is what is incumbent upon us as libertarians to expose that, that secret and that lie of what they're doing. So yes, uh, specifically to, to military and, and foreign policy, and the wars, and the destabilizations, and uh, and and uh, you know coups that that we're doing in other countries, 
bring the troops back home and maintain whatever level of military is necessary to defend against aggression. You know, the founders originally intended no standing army. We may find that's the case. We may find after having troops here and, and slowly drawing them down to what is necessary for aggression, we may find that no one wants to aggress against us. The terror groups, the blowback has ended because we're no longer bombing and invading and destabilizing their countries and, you know, killing them and bombing them and, you know, and, and uh, sponsoring other countries and other governments like Saudi Arabia to commit genocide in, in Yemen. We're no longer blockading and, and, uh, and embargoing other countries. We're allowing countries to heal from the damage that has often been caused by bad U.S. government policy. And now that it's healing, those people don't hate us. They never actually hated us. They hated what we, what our government, was doing to them. Now that's over. So the blowback ends. The terrorist threats end. The U.S. Uh, intelligence service arming of terror groups ends. And now we find we don't have any aggression to defend against. We may find we don't need a standing military. We'll find out when we get there. After we bring the troops home. 269 area. Oh, no. I thought finally I got 269 area code. They've been so patient. There we go. 269 area code. Finally, I was able to, to answer your call. Who am I speaking with? Hello. Hi. My name is Scott Brinker off from Michigan. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing amazingly. You got a question for me? Yeah. Uh, first off, I just wanted to say that I'm very proud to see uh, how well you and Joe have been doing. Thank you. Uh, and then start I'd like to ask a question. Um, how are your guys' uh, views on taxes and stuff like that? Uh, that is an excellent question. We are of the libertarian belief that taxation is, in fact, theft. Uh, and we uh, are in favor of abolishing the IRS. Uh, in fact, the libertarian platform calls for the eventual elimination of all coercive forms of generating revenue, all forms of taxation and tariffs to generate revenue for government and having government switch to a model that is based on voluntary services. Uh, voluntary fees for direct services. So if there's a service that you need from the government that you just pay for that service, uh, that does two things. First of all, it now makes it a voluntary interaction between uh, people and government. And second of all, it forces government to show what the cost of those services are uh, so that now they can't you know, jack up the charge too much because if you don't want it, you don't pay for it. Um, so we would get rid of uh, at the very least, we would be abolishing the IRS uh, and from there would be trying to transition us to a system of voluntary funding of the government services that we need. If we need government services, then there will be a demand for them and people will be willing to pay a, a fair market value for them. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Yay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good night. Have a good And so I think that we are, was 920? Um let me try to answer a couple of these questions. If one more, um, if one more uh, call comes in, I'll take that, and then we can wrap up. We'll be at, there. We go. Knew that would happen. Four eight zero area code. Who am I speaking with? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm doing amazingly. Uh, who am I speaking with? My name is Sean. Hey, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Oh, man, I, I didn't think I was going to get in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love to comment on your live stream. Um, 
it was earlier uh, regarding uh, the tribes here in Arizona and the uh, colonial offices known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yeah. And how they have a stranglehold on the economy in our tribe. Okay. You know, we're being ravaged by COVID-19. Our health care is socialized. <laughs> Drugs, domestic abuse, everything is rampant here on the reservation. Yeah. And I guess what I want to know or what I want to know what I want to ask is that, you know, do we have a platform for Native Americans? Uh, that is an excellent question. Let me ask you something. Which which tribe are you in? I am Navajo. You're a Navajo. Um, and so may I ask you, are you in one of the reservations where uh, private ownership of the property is not allowed, where it's where it's all owned by the by the I guess by Department of Interior or Department of Indian Affairs? Yes, sir. Okay, it is all and, privately owned, including our resources. We can't even develop our land. We can't build roads. We can't build stores. There is no free market on the yep. reservations. Yep. And that is the bit I would imagine that even though you were talking about specific problems like COVID-19 and, you know, rampant, uh, you know, uh, drug abuse and substance abuse and, and, and all yeah. of the, the terrible problems, all of that in my belief. Uh, is routed in the fact that you have been corralled into an area and not allowed to have stewardship and ownership of what is rightfully yours. That's my opinion. Correct. And while we don't, I don't believe that we have an actual, uh, a specific Indian uh, or, or native uh, or indigenous uh, people's plank uh, in our plan, I think that we should. And I think that it would be based essentially on allowing you, this is land that was reserved to you after multiple uh, broken treaties and essentially the theft, the violent theft of your land to allow for endless expansion of people coming in to form this country at largely at your expense. And I think that it is incumbent upon us, the descendants of people who came here as part of that expansion uh, to at least at the very least allow you to have stewardship and ownership of what is rightfully yours so that you can help build yourselves much in the same way that we were just talking about removing the harmful uh, occupational licensing and other barriers that harm the poor, mm -hmm. that keep the poor in poverty. I think we should also remove those barriers for you, not just in those types of yeah. licensing and things like that, but also in allowing you to have ownership of what is, again, rightfully yours. And I would actually, is it possible, would it be possible for you to reach out to me, um, to uh, message me, to talk, to maybe just give me kind of a brief uh, yeah. a, a cursory understanding of the kind of things that you face? Because I would be very happy to hear what you have to say, because I will admit that this is not something I'm an expert on. I have a brief understanding of some of the situations that are facing natives, uh, especially on the reservations. And one of the biggest ones, as I understand it, is that in almost all of them, uh, individual private ownership of the property is not allowed because the government claims ownership of all of it. Um, and I would be Correct. very happy to hear what you have to say and be able to, you know, form a more, uh, uh, a more detailed and coherent policy. Because, you know, when we talk about the people who were, uh, you know, whose land was essentially stolen uh, violently and, and under both violent and fraudulent pretenses, and we talk about the people that were, you know, imported over here uh, uh, against any any you know uh, any uh, any kind of moral code uh, to be forced to do labor on it, 
these are two groups that libertarians who believe inherently in reducing and, and ending and, 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 and uh, rectifying the harm that has been done by government. I think it is incumbent upon us to have very strong and bold and clearly formed and detailed and, and, and formulated plans uh, for those two groups, for natives and, and for the descendants of, uh, of chattel slavery. So I would be very happy if you could reach out to me either on Muddy Waters or on my page, uh, Spike Cohen, your next VP, and just kind of give me a breakdown. I, and I'll probably want to talk with you a little bit about it, if that's okay. Awesome. Thank you very much. And, and I'm sorry, yeah, just, I, I, I don't think I caught your name. What is your name? Uh, my name is Sean. Sean? Uh, Sean, yes, when sir. you reach out to me, just make sure that you say, you know, I'm the one that you spoke with on, uh, because I, as you can imagine, I get a, a tremendous amount of messages. I want to make sure that uh, that I know specifically who I'm talking with, that, that we were the ones who talked about the situation with the, with the on the Navajo reservation. Awesome. Yeah, you have a lot of support here, man. That it's means just, a lot. Thank you know, you. locating, activating, and getting them all ready, you know, behind you guys. Absolutely. Because the land that we own, it's, you know, we're on lease land. It's not even our land. The same thing goes with the resources. Our resources well, I, are privatized. The The Bureau of Indian Affairs controls all aspects of our lives, yeah. including, you know, how much how much land we can owe, how much livestock. A good majority of our economy comes from livestock. Right. And even to this day, they're asking us, you know, reduce your livestock, reduce your livestock. People can't live like this. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Of course not. And we wouldn't tolerate it for we wouldn't talk we ourselves wouldn't tolerate it and yet you know we've kind of sort of shrugged our shoulders and made peace that this is how we're treating natives and i think a lot of people just don't know so i think that we will this will be a very big part of anything i'm doing is in talking about i mean a perfect example of the harm done by government robbed you of, awesome. of what was rightfully yours put you on your own property leased it to you and told you how to use it i think that's absolutely disgusting that is by every measure rightfully yours it should be yours to to be able to use in the manner that you both as individuals and as a community see fit to be able to solve the problems that you are facing which are largely being caused by the government that imposed that on you so i would be very happy to talk with you moving forward on this sean awesome thank you i will message you and i have a whole list of things, man. I appreciate it again. Thank you. That is good. I, I well, I look forward to it, my friend. And you're you're going to become a friend of mine. We're going to talk a lot. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. All right. Have a good day. Thank night. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. All right. Well, I think that's going to be a good close there because it is now nine thirty. Um, and I think we have a, a good close there. Um, so we are going to wrap things up now. And again, please continue asking questions. Please continue leaving comments in the, uh, um, you know, all of the, you know, all of your questions, uh, any, anything that you'd like to ask me, even if it's already been asked and you didn't know it, go ahead and ask it again. I would be happy to answer any of the questions that are in here that I didn't already answer. Uh, again, it might take a day or so, but I, uh, I am here uh, to serve my uh, hopeful constituents, which is you, the American people, and, uh, and to talk about whatever uh, whatever it is that you have questions for. Uh, so just to let you know, schedule wise, uh, I will be, uh, Joe Jorgensen and I will be doing a joint AMA, uh, this Friday at, I think eight, seven, I think eight. I don't know now. Hold on. At seven, we will be doing at 7 PM. Uh, we will be doing a, uh, an AMA, uh, with me and Joe Jorgensen. 
And uh, I have some other interviews that are happening uh, later tomorrow and this weekend, but I think they're all pre-recorded stuff. I don't think any of them are live. Um, but as those things come up after they've been released, I will be sharing them on our on our social media. Um, so again, thank you so much uh, for your uh, for for tuning in to this episode of My Fellow Americans, uh, and. Uh, be sure to tune in on Tuesday, next Tuesday, for the next episode of The Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the sweet summer boys that we are. And then tune in this uh, a week from today, next Wednesday at 8 p.m., for My Fellow Americans, where I have a really special guest that I haven't confirmed yet, but I'm really excited about it. And uh, you're not going to believe who it is. Um, I'm, I'm kind of ex- I'm actually really excited about it. Um, but I think it'll be really good. Uh, if you would like to help the campaign, donate.joj2020.com. If you would like to volunteer, go to joj2020.com and volunteer. Uh, Be sure to follow us on social media. I am on uh, Facebook uh, at Spike. It's uh, Spike Cohen, your next VP, or in the address bar, it would be facebook.com slash literally Spike Cohen. And on Twitter, I am at real Spike Cohen. Um, and I'll also be sure to follow uh, Joe Jorgensen on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, and I believe on Instagram. Uh, I will be on TikTok very soon, uh, so be sure to do that. And again, feel free to uh, ask more questions. I look forward to answering them uh, as soon as I can. And thank you again for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans, and God bless you.